Welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. This might just be the strangest landscape we've talked about on the podcast. It's also the one we know least about. The best maps we have of it are based on satellite predictions, with a resolution so low that entire submarine mountains are hidden from view. Why do we know so little about this vast region of our planet, and what's being done about it? I'm joined by Laura Trithui, author of The Deepest Map, The High Stakes Race to Chart the World's Oceans. It's a fascinating read hooked to a gripping narrative of present-day exploration. We spoke about remarkable underwater landscapes, the difficulties of sonar mapping, and why the seafloor is still largely unknown. So let's start with what we know about this strange place, or or rather how little we know. You say that only around a quarter of the seafloor is mapped, and less than 1% has been explored with remotely operated vehicles. But I have at least three atlases, and all three show underwater features. Google Maps has really done a huge disservice to ocean mapping in a way, because if you go onto Google Maps or you look at the atlases like the ones you have, they will show a lot of seafloor features. So it looks like we know a lot more about the ocean floor than we actually do. So um, we've mapped a lot of the really big features. So big canyons, big trenches, Mariana Trench, for instance, in the Pacific has been surveyed many times and there's beautiful, precise maps of those places. But the majority of the, the maps that are made of the ocean today, they're made by um, by satellite. So kind of counterintuitively, you can beam satellites down and measure the gravity um, at the ocean surface. And doing that, you can kind of piece together that there's a canyon here or a mountain there But these maps, they're not very good. They can't get a resolution beyond four kilometers. So entire mountains can disappear in a four kilometer resolution. And so um, when we say 15% or 25% of the ocean is now mapped, that actually means just maps that have been made by sonar. So that means a ship going out to sea, sending a ping down and getting a return and then being able to make an accurate depth measurement from that. And that's really still the best way to make maps of the seafloor today. So you described the, those satellite maps as sort of like phrenology. Yes, exactly. Just kind of interpreting what may lay below. So, the, But those are not uh, maps that you could actually find anything with, like if you're looking for a particular point, right? Yes. Yeah. I actually, I was quoting from another Uh, book there. So I don't want to steal the phrenology term, but I just love the way that science journalists describe it. You can read the bumps and dips and you can figure out sort of the tapestry of the seafloor from there. So we should say something about the geography of both the sea and the seafloor. You mentioned a few few features, but first uh, the sea is divided into zones, right? According to depth. How does that work? Right. Okay. Yeah. So the sea, the sea is incredibly deep. So the absolute deepest point is in the Mariana Trench, just shy of 11 kilometers. Um, And then it's sort of divided into um, different zones from there. And so that 11 kilometer depth that you see in the Mariana Trench, that's really, really rare. That's called the Hadal zone. And that extends from, um, I believe, about six kilometers down to the absolute deepest, deepest depths. 
Um, and those are like less than 3% of the deep of the, of the sea. Um, but usually the ocean is divided into kind of three separate zones. So there is that first zone that we all know about, and that is the uh, sunlight zone. And it's very thin compared to the rest of the ocean. It's where there's still sunlight. Um, and it's only about 200 meters deep. And that's where we swim and we fish and we dive. And then the next twilight, the next zone is called the twilight zone. And that goes from 200 to 1,000 meters deep. And that's where the sun starts to disappear out. And um, you're getting a lot of change in water pressure and uh, the temperature is changing. Um, in 2014, an Egyptian special forces officer actually managed to visit the twilight zone. Um, it took him 15 minutes to descend and another 13 hours to reascend because he had to do these decompression wow. stops along the way or else his lungs would explode and he'd get the bends, serious bends. Um, so that's the deepest humans have gone without any kind of equipment or gear. And then at the next zone, um, that's about a thousand meters deep. That's where we enter the deep sea and there's all light disappearing at that stage. And that's where you need a vessel to go beyond. And you need kind of a, a submersible that has a lot of fancy engineering and testing to be able to withstand the pressures of the deep. And then a lot of marine biologists, they actually don't like this three level distinction. They actually wanna break down the deep sea into further categories because they don't find it specific enough. The deep sea, this third final zone, it accounts for 75% of the ocean depth. So it's huge, it's vast. So they break it down even further into the midnight zone, there's the abyss, and then there's the Hadal zone at the very bottom that I mentioned. That's the name for Hades? Yes, exactly, exactly. So the, you know, the hell, that, that hellish God is down there. And the abyss is actually, I should clarify, the abyss is, that is the bottom of most of the ocean. So the abyss is about, uh, I think it's about 6,000, 4,000 to 6,000 meters deep. And that is the majority of the deepest sea. And then the Hadal zone, that extra little bit where I was talking about the Mariana Trench, that's really rare. That's less than 3% of the, the seafloor. And so you're only getting that in like trenches, really deep trenches. Okay. So yeah, you mentioned uh, some features now. So sea mounts, those are underwater mountains, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And they track a lot of biodiversity and they pop up all over the, the seafloor, but they're really prevalent in the Pacific Ocean. Lots of sea mounts. Yeah. I was amazed to read that the, um, the Mid-Ocean Ridge is a 40,000 mile long underwater mountain range. That's incredible. You know, my editor actually tried to correct me, correct me on that because she was like, the the <laughs> the diameter of the earth, I mean, it's not that big. How can that be true? And I said, well, because the line wiggles. Yeah, right. And so it's going all over. It's not going straight. Mm. Um, so it's it's just this jagged line that goes all over the earth. And, and then you describe the abyssal plains as kind of the prairies of the deep sea. So, so what are they yeah. like? Um, they tend to be quite muddy and they have a lot of sediment. So layers and layers of sediment where animals have sort of died and drifted down onto these vast underwater plains, underwater prairies. These are the areas that people tend to think of as being quite dead or devoid of life, not very interesting, but there is still very fascinating things down there. They undulate and they have um, smaller hills and mountains. And so what you would kind of think of as like the foothills of a mountain, you'll get that there too. So where they'll kind of lead up to a seamount. Um, and they're really underexplored because we tend to skip over places that don't have geological features. 
So if there's not a cool brine lake or a cool seamount or something like that, it doesn't tend to attract as much attention um, from the animals, animals, but from people too. Animals tend to converge at places where there's differences in, in depth or you have cliffs and that kind of thing. And humans too are attracted to differences um, because maybe we can mine them or maybe there's animal life congregating there. And um, so they tend to get ignored. And you said trenches or canyons are where the action happens. This is where the tectonic plates meet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you have these um, at all these places where plate tectonics, those kind of uh, seismic interactions between plates, that's that's where a lot of the geological action is. So in the mid-Atlantic Ridge, that's where you have new earth sort of bubbling out of the rifts and seams in that like in those um, interfaces between tectonic plates. And then all around the Pacific, you have the ring of fire and you have um, old seafloor descending down into the core of the earth. So yeah, they're, they're fascinating places and animals can, if they live in these kinds of trenches or they live on these mountains, they're uh, incredibly destructive places. So if a uh, earthquake happens or something like that happens in these trenches, um, the Puerto Rico trench for instance, had a massive earthquake in 1918. It is just cataclysmic for the animals that live down there. They all get wiped out and a new ecosystem essentially starts again. I was amazed by what an active place this is. You mentioned um, underwater brine lakes. You talk about it's also mm -hmm. under, exploding underwater volcanoes. More than 80% of volcanic eruptions happen underwater. Uh, sizzling hot springs, mm -hmm. fracturing and rifting tectonic plates, blown out flattened volcanoes mud volcanoes that spew methane. And the weirdest one was uh, an underwater waterfall, much bigger than Angel Falls. That's amazing. You no, know, isn't that so cool? Yeah, that is um, near Denmark, this underwater waterfall that just some, some difference in temperature, you have some warmer water and some colder water and they collide at this cataract and a bunch of water just gets sucked down into the, the deep sea. Um, and it's all invisible to us. We, we you know, we'll never see, most of us will never see this place. Yeah, to, get, to put that in context, Angel Falls is what, 3,212 meters. And you said this waterfall is 11,500 feet. It's crazy, right? Everything in the ocean That's is amazing. Just, you know, it's double or triple the size of the features that we find on land. It blows my mind. <laughs> so a large part of your book explores why we know so little about the deep sea. So I'd like to give the listeners a sense of this by um, talking about a few of the reasons. So one is secrecy. In poorly mapped places like the deep sea, um, you can get some kind of military advantage on your rivals if you know more about the place than they do. And so because the ocean is a pretty poorly mapped place, that means that there's still a lot of military advantage in, in hiding maps of the seafloor. Um, so, you know, I've talked I've talked to scientists who, you know, they're mapping in the middle of the ocean and um, the military will kind of call them up and they'll say, yeah, don't map that because <laughs> that's where we hide submarines. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they won't care. They'll like put it in their their maps anyways, because they're mapping for science. But there's a lot of military value in knowing those secret spots where you can yeah, hide submarines or you can listen for any kind of um, military or Navy activity that's going on. And this has really come at the cost of science in a lot of ways. So 
Um, I've heard statistics saying that the discovery of plate tectonics was delayed by 30 years because of military secrecy. So we wow. could have known the shape of our planet and how it all fit together decades earlier if we hadn't been mind, uh, keeping maps from each other. And so that's that that was the sort of point of the book was to sort of um, encourage people to share because there's so much more that we could discover out there if we actually kind of got past this secretive sort of hoarding maps phase that we're in and that has really been around for centuries. That is the mm -hmm. default position when it comes to maps is to hide them. Also, you, you mentioned the um, exclu exclusive economic zones around coastlines. So a country might want to to hide that or or exaggerate that. So you don't want somebody else to map it if you're trying to claim more territory than, than you're entitled to. Mm -hmm. So how does that work? Mm -hmm. How do these economic zones work? Yeah, so the EEZ, the exclusive economic zone, and I'm going to say Z because I'm Canadian. It's not Z. Please do. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I've sent to you otherwise. <laughs> Bleep that part. Um, so the EEZ, uh, that extends, this is the area that's offshore of a country's coastlines. And so you get these different layers of authority that a country has over its water. And the there's first 12 nautical miles. Uh, a mile is a little bit longer than a, a nautical mile is a little longer than a regular mile. And um, the first 12 miles, that is the country's exclusive domain. So they can really do whatever they want in there. And then the exclusive economic zone extends 200 nautical miles off the coastline. Um, and your 12 nautical miles, it's included in that, that first 12 miles. And then there's the 200 miles after that. And within that EEZ, you can, you can do more kind of um, resource extraction. You can do fisheries, these kinds of things. Ships are still allowed to pass through these EEZs, um, although there's a lot of debate over that in the South China Sea right now. We're seeing that um, the Chinese actually don't really want to respect a lot of the international laws around EEZs. But typically, you are supposed to be able to let research ships pass through, to let shipping happen. Um, and But there is some ways to extend your EEZs even further. So if you can prove that your EEZ is actually um, part of a continental shelf that goes out even further, you can claim up to 350 nautical miles of EEZ off your shores. And so there's a lot of debate going on in the Arctic Ocean over um, whether countries can extend this 350 nautical miles. So Canada's trying to do that. Russia's trying to do that. Um, Denmark's definitely trying to do that. And um, yeah, it, 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 it might be a case where all the countries have like a pretty reasonable claim to, to uh, overlapping areas. And so, yeah, it's, it's just not um, a very easy place to parse out. And you need a lot of mapping by sonar to make really precise measurements to say that, yes, this is my continental shelf and it belongs to us. And then another factor, too, that um, has stopped the, the mapping of the ocean or prevented people from getting that interested in it well, was this interest like shipping routes shipping routes tend to follow the same the same uh ways around the globe the same sort of sea highways and those are well known but the places right adjacent to it might not be and the same for uh, cables when they were laying transcontinental cables they want to know where those things are going but beyond or outside the cable route nobody really cared very much mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah something that was mind-blowing for me writing this book was that when you look at where the maps have been made, they the, they follow those uh, shipping routes and they follow those um, the places where 
fiber optic cables have been laid. And um, CBIT 2030, this organization that I follow in the book that uh, is trying to create the first publicly available map of the seafloor by 2030, they've created this map where they show what's been mapped versus what hasn't been mapped. And the majority of the ocean is in darkness. And then you just see this little line of light go across an entire ocean. And what blew my mind while I was reporting is that there's there, there's a chance that like no boat has ever gone there, that no one has ever been to that place before, just because the majority of ships, they stick to tried and tested areas and they just go back and forth. And it's, it's just a safety thing. It, it costs money to have accidents at sea. So why would you veer off the, the safe line and go into these uncharted areas if you don't need to? Yeah, we've seen what happens when you do that. I was living when I was living in Malta. That uh, Italian cruise ship used to come into the port at Valletta all the time to the Grand Harbor, and that's the one that ran aground um, off off Sicily, someplace off Italy. That Costa Concordia. This yes, yeah, yeah, I used to see that all the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That was a that was a insane moment for cruise ships, um, <laughs> and I think that guy. I, I mean, I, I've heard stories that that captain was like had a woman up in the bridge or something like that. So I don't know. If, Showing off, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know if that was a case of him veering off into uncharted waters. But um, but yeah, you know, mistakes can happen and they still happen all the time. And I think that we forget about that until um, a really huge accident happens and it locks up international trade for weeks on end. Or you have to jettison a bunch of survivors out of the Arctic. So, yeah. This this stuff still happens all the time. Well, it just goes to show you how much is unknown. Like, well, you said the amount of seafloor left to map today is nearly double the size of all the continents on Earth combined. So, how is it done? Uh, it's too dark to see down there. How do how do you uh, map this territory that you can't get a good look at and that's too deep for accurate satellites uh, mapping? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a really great question. A really good basic question that I sometimes forget to answer. Um, we map the seafloor with with sounds. Um, so on land, we map with light. So we map using the speed of light and you can use lasers to do that kind of thing. And we've managed to put together complete maps of all the world's continents. But in the ocean, the ocean absorbs a lot of light. And so we can't use light, we have to use sound. And so you get a sonar that is attached to the bottom of the ship and it goes out to sea for weeks and months at a time. And an ocean mapper is sitting down in the ship and they're just sending out um, pings continuously. And these these pings, there's actually kind of thousands of pings contained in one little um, in one little beam. And so it creates this beautiful, big three dimensional portrait of the landscape directly underneath the boat. But it, it still it takes uh, a huge amount of time. These are incredibly complicated, incredibly expensive. Um, maps to produce Um, and so mappers go out there and they do something called like mowing the lawn where they just kind of cover off tracts of ocean at a time and they just survey bit by bit by bit and so this helps explain why we still haven't mapped this place because it's a really expensive I think I've heard estimates something like $50,000 a day to run one of these survey shows so it's incredibly expensive to to put these maps together um, in that traditional way that we've done it up till now. So single single versus multi-beam sonar, what's uh, what's the difference? Oh, exactly. Yes. I'm so glad that you brought that up. So yes, what I was just talking about there with multi-beam sonar is where you have a beam with multiple pings. 
So uh, I forget how many pings is con typically contained in a beam, but yeah, essentially you have this swath of tons of beams and that is creating this, this almost vase-like shape that goes down into the seafloor. Um, and this is really the best way to map the seafloor. This is what the military uses. This is what the government uses. Um, single beam sonar can also be really helpful, but it's typically used by, um, you know, ships and captains who just have, they just need one beam kind of with one ping going directly down. And that's because they just need to know directly what's underneath their ship. So they don't run aground. So single beam is really helpful for that. So that's usually where you see single beam. Um, it's just a, a more simplified version, but it has its uses as well. You can also use it to do things like um, count fish. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, is a, is a fish finder, like the kind of fish finder you could buy for your boat, the average guy to go to go fishing? Is that, a, is that a single beam sonar? Exactly. Yeah, it was just a ping going down. And that's, yeah, it's a single beam. Yeah, a very simple echo sounder that you use to to see the bottom of your, the seafloor and catch some fish. Doesn't help you to catch the fish. I can vouch for that. But uh, <laughs> you can see the... You can see all the fish that you're not catching. Yeah. Uh, so I was surprised to to read that rough weather messes with sonar. That had never occurred to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it throws off the measurements hugely. So for the book, I actually at one point went on board this, this ship called the Nautilus. That's part of the uh, Ocean Exploration Trust. And they were doing a mapping expedition up the coast of California. So we went from LA to Oregon. Uh, and there's this point off the coast of California, Point Conception, that where all these uh, winds hit. So there's north winds and south winds, and they collide at this sort of chin sticking out of California's coastline. Notoriously rough weather there. You're really lucky if you get around this coastline without a gale. But we were not that lucky, and it was really horrible weather, and we didn't manage to get good maps in that in that weather. There was just too many things sort of competing with the sonar. So when a boat sort of heaves up onto the onto a wave, then bubbles get shoved underneath the bow of the ship, and it blocks the sonar, for instance. So things like that make it really difficult. And the ship is kind of pitching and heaving, and you can actually see that on the sonar. It creates these kind of huge arcs of sound underneath the ship. Um, and you can so you can see the movement of the ship. So we were out there and we managed to collect 4,000 square kilometers of maps, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually really not a lot in the grand scheme of the ocean. And then within that 4,000 square kilometers, um, only 426 square kilometers was absolutely new, new maps, had never been made before. And those maps got sent back into the super map that they're building of the ocean, the Seabed 2030 map. So all those maps that we made, 426 kilometers, square kilometers, that went into the super map. But it really brought home just how hard it was to map in bad weather. And how long did that take you? So how long did you spend out there to get that, that data? So the expedition was nine days. But we were doing some other experiments and stopping at different points. So I think we spent two, three days making those maps. And it makes sense that, that the the motion of the ship and the twisting and, and yawing would, would screw up the measurements. And then you also say that um, things like water temperature differences and pressure and salinity also change how sound moves through the water. And that all has to be calculated in as well. It's incredibly complicated. Yeah. So that little that little ping that we have when it's going down to the bottom of the seafloor, 
um, one mile, uh, one second equals roughly one mile of depth. And so that sounds really easy, right? Mm. So just send down a pane, calculate how many seconds it takes to come back, no big deal. But then you get, yeah, you get pressure, you get temperature, um, you get all these other things that are warping that ping as it's going down miles and coming back up miles. And so we would do things like we would have sound velocity probes. And so you'd actually shoot these probes into the ocean that would sort of test the sound velocity in certain areas of the water. Or we'd go down into the bottom of the ship and we'd go down into the sea chest, uh, which is this area that pumps water in from outside and kind of cools machinery on board. But you can also do you can also use the sea chest to test the temperature outside the hull of the ship. So we'd go down there and we'd we'd uh, clean off this huge thermometer that was like covered in marine growth, and you'd like take this big slimy thing off and you'd get a temperature reading and that kind of thing. So and it's just it is usually one person doing that on a shift, and they might be trading off shifts with a couple other people on on board. But it's usually, you know, just like one person working away, moving around the ship, making sure everything's working, doing all the troubleshooting um, and doing all the calculations and trying to clean out any errors as new maps are rolling in. So you said that that stuff has to be cleaned up manually. Yeah. And these these errant observations from bad weather or bubbles or whatever. How do you tell? Yeah, yeah. That was something that still blows my mind, that there is somebody manually going in and removing what's called flyers. So sometimes the sonar will hear a echo of another ping, for instance, or as I was talking about those swings in the ships that are creating um, lots of errors. So the, the ocean mapper starts to get a good sense of what looks like an error and what doesn't. But I've actually gone through and cleaned maps with another ocean mapper. And you can start to see where things don't make sense because you see like a general trench, let's say, and then you'll get a ping in the middle of the trench and it's just floating there. And it's like, okay, that statistically doesn't make sense that they were, the seafloor would all of a sudden be right in the middle of this trench. So you start to get a good handle on, on what makes sense and what doesn't. But yeah, there is somebody cleaning those maps by hand. Wow. Another interesting bit of trivia too. You said that each night, a swarm of hundreds of millions of plankton, squid, and fish rises to feed in the surface waters and then sinks back down during the day to hide from predators in the dark. And this is the world's largest daily migration of biomass. And the sonar also bounces off that, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's something called the the false bottom. So um, they figured out this false bottom, I believe, during World War II when they were doing kind of anti-submarine um, warfare tests off of California, and they realized that the the bottom of the ocean kept changing during the day, and so they were trying to figure out like why is the ocean so much shallower at this point of the day, and then all of a sudden it gets deeper at this other point of the day. Like, is the ocean floor actually moving? But then, yeah, it turned out to be these critters that um, rise up to feed at night and then sink down during the day to hide from predators. And there's it's so big that it actually creates a false bottom. That's amazing. Just such a massive movement of life and you know, something you'd expect on the, you know, in the North, you know, the caribou migrations or something, but it happens daily in the sea. It's beautiful. Tell me, um, describe your daily life on, on the Nautilus. Well, I would try and compete with other people who are on board the Nautilus and try and get up at like a decent hour because <laughs> these are ocean scientists who, you know, when they're out at sea, they work really, really hard. Um, so people are getting up, uh, usually, um, six, 7am in the morning, if not earlier. Um, 
and you're going around and you're checking in on all the different teams and the research that they're doing. So when we were on a an ocean mapping portion of the expedition, that was actually kind of a downtime for a lot of people because we'd just be running the sonar and the mappers would kind of be going around troubleshooting things. But if we were doing experiments, then things really kicked up the pace. So um, then you've got teams working in shifts. You've got pilots working submersibles or working these uh, remotely operated vehicles. And people are trading off different tasks. They're collecting um, clams or um, water samples. And then you'll go into a lab and everybody's like busily pipetting away and trying to get all their samples uh, recorded as quickly as possible before the next one comes in. So there's just, you know, usually about three or four different teams that are all moving around the ships and all have different priorities. And um, everybody's pretty sleep deprived. And then if this is also happening in really bad weather, then you also have people who maybe are seasick or whatnot who are trying to just get through the day and not throw up on the person next to them. <laughs> did you get seasick? I did not get seasick, which was oh, a huge delight to find out that I did not get seasick. That really would have ruined my like career prospects. <laughs> oh, that'd be awful. So um, your book talks a lot about early attempts at mapping the sea. Tell us about the remarkable story of Marie Tharp. She's quite an interesting character. Isn't she fascinating? Yeah, she's this early history, uh, early figure in the history of ocean mapping. And she kind of comes up during this post-war, um, Cold War phase. Um, she's working at this institution called the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory that um, is stationed in upstate New York. And she's kind of a weird character for her time. Like she's um, she's a divorcee, she's single. She's a woman working in this in the sciences at a time when women were not really well um, received in the sciences. But she's clearly really smart and she wants to do something with her life. And so she, she kind of falls backwards into cartography. And uh, she, she's, she's working there at a time at Lamont Doherty where it's kind of the right place and the wrong, it's, it's the right place and the wrong place for her um, because she's, there's a lot of amazing maps coming in from the ocean at that time because of the Cold War. So there's just reams and reams of seafloor maps that have never been done before. And she's a cartographer and she can actually um, painstakingly plot all these maps out. So there's so much to work with. But at the same time, as, as a woman working in sciences at that time, she's not allowed to actually get on any of the ships that are going out to collect those maps because women are not allowed to be on board ships. They're, they're, it's just verboten. They're not even allowed to set foot on the gangplank at Lamont until like the late sixties or seventies. So she has to figure out a way to get around this prohibition. And she ends up forging this sort of part scientific, part romantic partnership with this, other really smart scientist, um, Bruce Heason, and he's incredibly ambitious and he wants to pursue all these ideas that he has about, he, he believes that the earth is expanding. And so he's going out and he's collecting um, surveys across the Atlantic and he brings them back to Marie and she's the one who kind of puts them all down on a map. And as she's putting together this map of the Atlantic, she realizes that there's a little ridge that's happening at the same place on every single map. And when she's looking at that, she realizes like 
this looks like continental drift. Like this looks mm. like um, a place where new earth is coming out of the, uh, out of the middle of the ocean, out of the middle of the earth. And so um, she takes it to Bruce and she shows him the map and he hates it. He's like, take it away. It looks like continental drift. Uh, he actually calls what she's doing girl talk because uh, continental drift at that time was really like a heretical idea in the sciences, particularly. Why? Like, Why was it so controversial? Yeah. Um, so there's this interesting story. Like it was particularly hated amongst American geologists. Um, they kind of thought it was bad science, that it was um, not rigorously grounded in, you know, fact-based science, like the scientific method. And it came, um, the person who originally came up with it was Alfred Wagner, who's like this German scientist, but he was not, um, he was kind of a polymath. He had, um, he was looking at so many different subject areas and he just managed to kind of look at a map of the world and realize that all the continents look like they fit together. And so he came up with the idea of Pangea, you know, that supercontinent. And then he said, like, things could drift apart. And then he, he also went into anthropology and all these other areas to kind of back up his assertions. But um, he, that idea was welcomed in some corners of the world. But for whatever reason, it did not go down well in American geological circles. So you couldn't really advance in American geology if you believed in continental drift. And so people who did were called like drifters, like they were like loons, like you just kind of would dismiss them out of hand. And so that's why Bruce had such a visceral reaction to like, no, that that can't be true. And so Marie kind of persists with this idea. She keeps making more maps. She keeps bringing them to him. And eventually they kind of settle on some kind of compromise where Bruce can continue to um, explain these maps as his expanding earth theory because in the Atlantic that is happening um new seafloor is coming out of the mid-Atlantic ridge so he's right if you look at the Atlantic it's expanding but we didn't have enough maps of the if you look over in the Pacific it's shrinking and so um eventually continental drift leads into this theory of tectonics that comes out in the mid-60s and what's incredible is that Marie Tharp's maps um are published in the in National Geographic or the work that she's producing, it's made into a map in, and published in National Geographic in 1967, which was the perfect year to publish this map because there was all these debates going on around plate tectonics and then her maps get produced and everyone can see these this mid-Atlantic uh, ridge system that starts in the Atlantic and then goes all the way around the world, 40,000 miles, as you were saying. And you can see the, the rifts right there for yourself. So you can't, can't deny it and so she really kind of provided this first modern scientific glimpse of the seafloor so did you say that Jacques Cousteau she, nobody believed her that these that there was this mid-Atlantic ridge and he just dragged a sled behind with yes. cameras behind his boat and then you just see it coming up out of the sea Isn't I tried to find this a video of this online I couldn't find it anywhere yeah exactly there was this famous conference in New York in the night in the late 1950s where Jacques Cousteau played video of yeah, this this sled video that he shot, just dragging it over the top of the Mid Atlantic Ridge, and Marie Tharp describes watching this video, and she just says like these kind of ghostly mountains just appear out of nowhere, and he was a skeptic, wow. and then he saw the videos and he he saw the proof himself. So, so how does this work then? The Mid Atlantic Ridge, you said uh, this is where new land is being produced. Yeah, so new um, 
seafloor is sort of burbling up out of that that molten layer of the earth. And then it's sort of splitting apart and you can get all kinds of interesting things happening at those at those rifts as well. You can get things like hydrothermal vents. Um, so you can get these uh, sort of minerals, these car- calcium carbonate um, mineral spires kind of busting out and they're soaring up, you know, meters from the bottom of the seafloor. You can get these fantastical underwater spaces happening at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge because there's so much seismic activity there. So if people, if people are trying to visualize this, basically Iceland is at the at the top of it. Yes. And then it, yes, exactly. it winds down through what what would be the other Tristan de Kuna would be at the bottom of it, I guess, or somewhere near the bottom of the Atlantic. That's still active. Yeah, yeah. So if you ever go to Iceland and you wander around the Mid-Atlantic Ridge actually comes up on shore there. So you can go wander around in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge on land. Um and you know, I've never seen it myself, but I've seen pictures and it it's incredible landscape so just these big rifts in in the earth and then it's being pushed uh, so the new land is bubbling up and forming and then it's pushing both sides away from itself and you can see uh, a place like the azores the portuguese island chain they've been pushed off the ridge then and they're no longer active right so there you can see the you can trace the line of it and trace um the, the parts of it that were pushed away and become dormant volcanoes as the new ones bubble up that's quite amazing so it's Mm-hmm. Once you once you have the key to this map, you can see it ab- above the surface as well. So, and then in the Pacific, it's the opposite. Uh, the opposite uh, side of that process is happening. Mm-hmm. That is where um, old seafloor is kind of getting sucked down. So the Pacific is the oldest ocean, and that's where that um, old seafloor gets kind of sucked down or descends down into these um, these trenches, where where basically things kind of go to die geologically. And that's sort of the the end of the seafloor, and it gets recycled back down into into the earth. Um, and that's why we have so many um, volcanic eruptions along this area too. Um, the Hawaiian island chain is, you know, those are volcanoes, and they're sort of gliding over um, seismically active spots in the earth. And so all of a sudden, you'll get these seamounts kind of pop out of the middle of the ocean. It's not anywhere near a uh, a ridge or a rift or a, or a trench or anything like that. It's just a seamount kind of forming up or a volcano, sorry, forming up out of the middle of the Pacific. So if you go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, for example, would you see these plates like shoving in under one plate, shoving in under the other? Oh man, you know, I, I wish I could tell you, I have not been there myself. <laughs> not too many people <laughs> have it. I'm just curious. If, so is no. it, is it in the bottom of the trenches that, that, that sort of thing happens or is it yeah, that somewhere sort of is happening. Um, so Marie Tharp's maps, you said she did those those ocean maps for Nat Geo. Did she do like the Indian Ocean and all those ones that, that were published over the years? Those are all hers? Yeah, I actually have, um, your listeners won't see this. Yeah, yeah. So I have the Indian Ocean map by Marie Tharp. And that was the first one that was published in the Indian, uh, in National Geographic. And then they produced, uh, I think for the next couple of years, they produced a new ocean map each year, finally culminating in that world map that was produced at the end. Yeah, Bruce Heason actually never got to see that final map because he actually died with the prints of of that map with him when he was on a a nuclear submarine um, that was actually going to go see the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. He was going to go see it in real life off Iceland in a nuclear sub. And he he had a heart attack down there. And so there was something sort of poetic and tragic about the end of Bruce season because he was carrying these maps, this life work with him. And he actually died going to see 
these these underwater rift systems that he'd been studying his whole life. Wow. That's really sad. So you said that what what she produced wasn't actually a map of the ocean, but you described it as a characterization of what the seafloor would look like if you removed all the water. Yeah. That's an interesting interesting visual. Yeah, that's right. So you, but you couldn't actually use that to find specific points. It's not that detailed. No, no. So um, some people have sort of had various geographers and geologists, they've sort of had problems with Marie Tharp's map you know, it's it's the most popular representation we have of the seafloor today. Um, and in the same way that we were talking about that Google Google Maps kind of leads you to believe that we know more about these places when we do than we do. Marie Tharp's maps are are really the same way. We don't actually have a whole lot of um, surveys to sort of back them up. So she had to sort of fill in the blanks the best way she knew how. And so you you can't use these maps to like find a particular seamount necessarily. They might be like 150 miles away from where she thought they would be, but she's, she's doing a lot of conjecture to kind of fill in the gaps because there just wasn't a lot of information to cover on the whole ocean at that point in time. But this work to map the world's ocean seems to be picking up the pace now. Why now? Oh, I mean, that's a big, that's a big question. I mean, um, 2017, this CBA 2030 initiative kicks off, and there was a lot of interest and activity around ocean research at that time. So throughout like the kind of late aughts, early 2000, uh, early 2010s, there was um, billionaires and millionaires all of a sudden kind of buying up ships and founding uh, ocean research institutions. And then um, at the same time, there was a lot of devastating uh, reports coming out about marine health. So, you know, this many pounds of plastic are going to be in the ocean and the fisheries are going to collapse. And so there was just a lot of interest all of a sudden kind of building around the ocean. And then the UN declares that the 2020s are going to be the decade of ocean science. And so CBA 2030 decides, you know, like they're going to get in on the action too. And they decide that this is the right time to pitch this initiative to finally map the entire seafloor by the end of 2030. So by the end of this ocean decade uh, that the UN is pitching. But there's probably a deeper answer there too. I mean, the thing is, is that we've industrialized most of the land, the the you know, all the, all the continents show some impact from human activity. And there's still parts of the ocean that just don't have any human impacts. Like I think 13% is still classified as like absolutely wild, no human impacts. And so it makes sense that as we're kind of getting to the end of um, the resource extraction we can do on, on land, that we would start to look offshore. And so I had ocean mappers say to me, you know, that the future is offshore that we're heading into the industrialization of the ocean. And so um, it makes sense if you're heading into this new period of ocean industrialization that you need maps to sort of pave the way and to show people where to go. And this is a totally, I mean, mostly unexplored, uncharted realm. And so it makes sense that that mapping activities are sort of kicking off right now. But you said it's also um, competing with space in terms of funding. And that's People, space seems much so much more exciting. Sending sending ships to Mars or people to Mars, which is a desert planet, which appeals to me. But but there's so much <laughs> we we don't know that right here, right here outside the door. Yeah, exactly. So I was sort of portraying the ocean as being 
um, you know, getting all the money, all the funding, all the research, but it really pales in comparisons to space exploration. Like the amount of money that we sink into the ocean is really peanuts compared to what we put into space exploration. Um, and so I think there was some number that like the, the dollars that NASA spends on space exploration, it's like $150 to $1, uh, $150 for um, $1 of ocean exploration. So it's really different numbers. And, and yeah, that was something that always kind of bothered me and sort of kicked off the beginning of this book because I appreciate space. I, I like looking up at the moon and the stars and that kind of thing, but I'm really more of an ocean person. And I never really understood why people gravitated to space so much, especially because this place doesn't, I mean, doesn't impact us that much, you know, like Mars, whatever. Um, it's, it's never going to have an impact on my daily life while I can go to the ocean and I could go swimming and diving and those things. I care about those things a lot more. So I never really understood it. And then there's this cliche, you know, that we care more about the, or we know more about the moon and Mars than we do the seafloor. And I'd heard that cliche a million times and it always really bothered me because I was like, why <laughs> do we care more about space than we do the ocean floor? And then I started to kind of dig into that cliche a little bit more. And I found out that it was really about mapping that we'd mapped the moon and Mars perfectly, but that we hadn't mapped the seafloor. And so that really directed my attention back into mapping. Like, why don't we care about this space? Yeah, that's really amazing. So people like Seabed 2030, they they have to get quite innovative given this scarcity of funding or the competition for funding. So you say they're trying to bring all the maps of the, the ocean together into one giant map. So they're they're trying to get this data out of the militaries that are that have been hoarding it forever. They've, they're getting data from... Uh, ships regular ships that are you know puttering around the the shipping routes and what about crowdsource maps where does that come in right yeah so crowdsourcing was one of the ways in which seabed 2030 thought that they'd be able to finish this map in time um that they'd be able to make this deadline of 2030 so so yeah so they've made a lot of progress asking various countries to donate maps that are in their vault They've managed to take the map from 15% up to 25% in the last six years. So they made a lot of progress. But crowdsourcing is really, really helpful in these really remote parts of the world. So places like Pacific Islands or the Arctic or Antarctica, although there's not a whole lot of people who live down in Antarctica. But what you can do is you can kind of recruit um, locals to put a data logger, hook it up to that um, fish finder that we were talking about earlier. You can hook up a data logger onto your echo sounder. You can go out and say a fisherman or a tourist boat or whatever. They're kind of going around doing their daily stuff. And at the same time, they're building a map of the seafloor. So those people can actually just opportunistically contribute to Seabed 2030. And so um, crowdsourcing is maybe not going to be the key to finishing this map because there's so much ocean to cover, but uh, it's really helpful in these remote locations. It's a good way to get people interested or get them to care about it as well, because you give people a stake in it and they feel like they're contributing it, even if it's just a small part. You know, you, you care much. It's like when you travel to a place and you care much more about what happens to it afterwards, kind of pay attention mm -hmm. to it. Your trip to Nunavut was a great example of that, this kind of community level map making. That's a place I'd love to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for the book, I went to a small uh, village, really. It's 3,000. I think it maybe classified more as a hamlet in Nunavut called Avia, and it's on the western banks of uh, Hudson Bay. 
which is a huge undermapped bay in the Arctic. That, that surprised really, me too. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, exactly. Like it's a massive bay, and we're probably, you know, we're years away from finishing that. So, um, so this community in in Nunavut, they have never had good maps of their shoreline, and they're having a lot of accidents up there. Um, the environment is changing really quickly, and so they decided, like, we're gonna crowdsource a map of our bay. Our bay has changed so much in the last 20, 30 years. We're having accidents there. So they uh, piloted um, one type of crowdsourcing technology. And I just sat with some Inuit hunters on their boat for a week while they just like went back and forth and mapped their bay. And, um, you know, some of them thought it was like a little boring at the time. They were like, why are we sitting here on this boat just going back and forth? Like, I'd, I'd like to be hunting belugas or seals. Um But I found that a year later, once they finished that map and they were able to share it with the rest of the hamlet, then there was a lot more pride about what they'd accomplished because they made a map of this bay and the government wasn't coming to map their bay anytime soon. Um, It's just not as big of a priority for big, like the the Canadian government. And so, um, so they just took it on themselves. And I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, that's really great. The government does nothing for the North. It's really disgusting. And that's, uh, mm-hmm. that was really great too. Well, they'll go find like Franklin's lost ships. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but they won't map this bay that really needs mapping for this small community. So what about robot mapping? That's pretty interesting. Yeah. So when I was talking about just how complicated and difficult and expensive ocean mapping is, like that it took me and the team that I was with a couple of days to do 426 square kilometers. Um, that has sort of led into this other innovation that CBA 2030 talks about. So they talk about crowdsourcing and then they talk about um, drones, basically. So drones are a huge focus in the ocean mapping world right now. And basically they can go out and map for months, maybe weeks, months on end, and they're cheaper than ships. Um, there's no crew on board, so you don't need to feed anybody. They this this one that I covered is called sail drone, so it actually has a sail on it, so it, it can sometimes just sail, so it doesn't need very much diesel. Um, and so they're more environmentally friendly, they're quieter, um, and because they're cheaper, that means that they're more accessible to developing countries. So there's really still a lot of colonization baked into the seabed 2030 maps. You can see that the richer countries have the better maps and the poorer countries have worse maps. And so drones are also really exciting because it means that a country that doesn't have a whole lot of map- mapping money, they can't spend $50,000 a day to run a, a survey ship, they can buy a drone and they can you know, pilot that around and get good maps of their country, which, or their coastlines, which means they could do things like extend their EEZ, which again, that's only something that rich countries can really afford to do. Um, the poor countries have to rely on, on richer countries to do that mapping for them. But I found that drones, I mean, as I'm hyping drones up here, but I found that drones, um, I was a little sad to see these robots going out and mapping the seafloor because I'm not sure it's probably really obvious that I'm, I'm romantic about ocean expeditions. I really love um, stories of people at sea. That's how I fell in love with ocean writing in the first place. And so the idea of these robots doing that kind of on the ground discovery, um, being out in the field and making all these incredible discoveries, 
that struck me as a little bit sad because this is the stuff that Jules Verne and those sci-fi writers at the turn of the century used to dream about doing. And and we were going to go let a robot do that. And I just thought like, nah, why would we give that up? That's such a cool job. Well, that's just the beginning. We're going to be working for them pretty soon, I think, right, within our <laughs> lifetime. So is, are these maps being fed into the seabed 2030? These drone maps? Mm-hmm. So the the company that I covered in the book, it's called Sail Drone. Um, they did a collaboration with Seabed 2030, um, where they sent the drone back to Hawaii and back, and they chose a track line. You know how we were mentioning that there's, you know, there's certain shipping routes that these ships follow, and they never deviate. So they um, purposefully chose a route that no ship had ever gone, and they sent the sail drone out to Hawaii and back. And it, it successfully got there. It took a bunch of um, various biological measurements on the way. And then you had somebody back on land tracking it to, to make sure that it, it arrived safely and came back. And so Seabed 2030, wherever they can, they try and piggyback on these kind of drone expeditions and try and get the maps that they're creating. That just reminded me too, um, in the book, you mentioned that the, the Nautilus, the ship that you were on, you can, you can watch the live stream of their they're mapping online. I'll put a link to that in the in the blog with the with the link to your book as well and all that stuff. Um, I was looking at that a, a few times recently. It's pretty interesting. A bunch of different relaxing, camera views. You can right? see you can see the uh, the screen what they're seeing on the on the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really cool. Mm-hmm. So I want to mention a few of the the sorts of things being discovered in these uh, these parts of the world that are so unknown to us. You say that studying the ocean uh, it's one of those rare fields where major breakthroughs happen by accident all the time. And you've got, you've got a bunch of these um, things in the book, like an octopus garden off California, um, a coral reef taller than the Empire State Building. That's amazing. Uh, and archaeology, it's some of this mapping is shedding new light on pre-contact North America. I was quite surprised mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's an area that really the archaeological impacts of mapping, that is something I never really thought about before. Um but yeah, I did one of these chapters was following uh, underwater archaeologists who were working in the Gulf of Mexico, and they were using a type of sonar to lead them to underwater sites with human activity that had never been discovered before. And so um, it was it was kind of a, it opened up this whole new window to me into the seafloor because all of a sudden I started to understand that um, seafloor used to be land. A lot of seafloor used to be land. And so there's all this early human history that's locked up in the seafloor. So just to, to back up and explain, you know, 8,000 years ago, when the, we were still at the, we were at the end of the ice age and the glaciers started melting, released all this water back into the ocean, raised uh, sea level and covered up all these coastal areas where, you know, early humans were, were puttering around. And so um, if you go out and you actually go down into these spaces that used to be human landscapes, you can use sonar to kind of pick out the spots that they were living. And the underwater archaeologists I was I was following, they said that there's still remarkable integrity in a lot of those sites. Uh, a lot of archaeologists have, have brushed these sites off because they thought that, you know, the ocean has probably destroyed them, but actually that they are finding that they've almost been like encased in the sediment. So you can actually start to tell stories and start to imagine what life might have been there like there um and the farther offshore you go basically the deeper back history you go 
So the places that are closer to the shoreline, that's earlier. And then, and then I know one of that, those state archaeologists in Florida, that's primarily where I was, he's working, you know, farther and farther offshore these days. And so he's kind of going back into going back in time. Wow, that's amazing. It wouldn't be cool if that uh, solved the mystery of, you know, how, how the Americas were populated, because it totally makes sense that people would have moved down the coast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the big questions that they hope that they can resolve that, you know, for years and years, we thought it was the Bering Land Bridge migration that, that would happen. But that theory has kind of fallen apart in recent years. You know, parts of it might be true. Maybe all these migrations happened in different ways. And so they think that underwater archaeology could be one way that they they figure that out when they start to uncover um, early human history along the Pacific coastline. Maybe we're missing a big big chunk of the story because we just haven't actually mapped those areas very well. That's amazing. So we think of the, these deep sea discoveries as being, you know, strange creatures or uh, perhaps hints to the origins of life on our planet and other planets. But it's it's also concealing the human story as well. That's really interesting. So yeah. the, last, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was um, the threat of deep sea mining. This is such an obviously bad idea. So how, how does this how does this work? And um, well, why is it a bad idea? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people have that reaction when, you know, we've done so many horrible things to the to the ocean over the years. You know, we've had really destructive fisheries industries. We've dumped old nuclear waste down there, all kinds of things. And now we're thinking about mining the seabed. So, yeah. So the reason why this is such a bad idea is because, um, well, the area that they're the miners are primarily interested in is actually something that we were talking about earlier in the podcast where we were talking about um, like abyssal plains. So the abyss, like those flat, muddy, prairie-like areas of the deep sea. Um, there's something that forms there called manganese nodules. So this could be like the tooth of an ancient shark, or it could be a little bit of clamshell that drifts down years and years ago, millenniums ago. And uh, over time, it scavenges minerals from the ocean, and it forms this nodule. And those things are really rich in nickel and cobalt and all kind of rare earth elements that are really in demand right now for things like electric vehicles. And so uh, the miners are, deep sea mining proponents are really hyper-focused on this area called the clarion Clipperton Fracture Zone, which is in the Pacific, halfway between Hawaii and Mexico. And it's huge. Like, just like everything we've been talking about, you know, waterfalls, whatever, in the ocean, mining sites are vast. Um, this one is the size of Europe. And um, the plan there would be to lower some kind of um, nodule collector that's like the size of an army tank, roughly. And then you'd lower it down onto the seafloor and it would sort of plow across these muddy plains, crush everything underneath it, and then scoop up the manganese nodules. And then they get pumped up to the sea, to the ship that's waiting at the top via these risers. And then the nodules get plucked out and the nodule and the, the tailing waste gets pumped back, back down into the ocean. So, I mean, I mean, right when I describe it, I think you can probably pick up some of the places where the environmental concerns are, but the big one is the plumes is these like this toxic dust that could spread over the ocean for the miners say it's only going to be maybe a dozen kilometers, but there's a lot of skepticism around those claims. Like it could be, who knows, there's no borders at sea. So it could spread for, for, for miles and miles and miles. We don't know. So it's just it's just a huge experiment on a vast, vast scale. And there's a lot of scientists, 700 some scientists have now come out and, and signed a petition saying to please halt this 
huge experiment so that we can actually study this place a little bit longer. And a bunch of countries and companies have signed uh, on for moratoriums or pauses on deep sea mining. But every couple of months, these uh, deep sea miners and these delegates and diplomats, they meet and they discuss whether to allow deep sea mining to go ahead. So, you know, every couple of months, we're inching closer and closer to this, this potentially going ahead. Yeah, you mentioned too that even even if the tailings are not toxic, these vast uh, sediment plumes could drag down creatures that drift in the water column, uh, clog the filter feeding appendages of sponges and other animals. Uh, they absorb light, so kind of bioluminescent type animals that use uh, self generated light to feed or communicate. They're, they're not going to be able to see anything. The, the effects of it are are very widespread. It's not just uh, mm-hmm. poisoning the sea with uh, waste products of mining. It's the just the stirring up all this this dust and sediment itself. And it must take a hell of a long time to settle at these depths. So just, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I guess the other problem would be the deep sea isn't controlled by anybody. So can anybody really do anything to stop this? Yeah. So there, there is this organization that's in charge of the high seas um, called the International Seabed Authority. They're supposed to be in charge of the area that's, that's high seas. And so that's about, um, Oh, 50% or so of the ocean is is high seas. And so that's an area where there's no claims by any countries. And so um, the ISA, they're based out of Jamaica, and um, about a half dozen people work there, and they're in charge of this vast space. Um, and they're kind of a complicated organization because they are they're aligned with the UN, but they are charged with... Um, regulating deep sea mining and essentially promoting it um, and also with make, protecting the marine environment. And so this organization was formed uh, dozens or not dozens, two decades ago um, at a time when we didn't know as much as we do now about the life that lives there. And so the ISA is really trying to catch up to what the environmental impacts of deep sea mining are going to be at this time when there's like a lot of strain, as I mentioned, the industrialization is of the ocean is really picking up. And so the ISA was sort of formed at a time when, you know, it was it was formed at a time when we didn't know as much about the ocean. And so there's a lot of pressure on this group to, to either permit mining or to stop it. And so that's where this these delegates and these advocates and uh, proponents or opponents of deep sea mining, they all meet every four months to kind of hash this out. Well, hopefully it'll be uh, too expensive and difficult and unprofitable for this to ever happen on any practical scale. But, but I think that's a, a good place to end. I really enjoyed the book. It's called The Deepest Map, again. And uh, we didn't even touch on so many things that you've included there. Like I didn't want to spoil the narrative. There's a really cool narrative tied to <laughs> uh, tied to ocean exploration and, and, and the attempts to reach the deepest point in each ocean that, that really carries the story along. And other stuff too, like the the complicated issue of naming, naming discoveries on mm-hmm. the ocean floor. That's pretty interesting. So there's there's so much more here to uh, to discover. So I hope readers pick it or listeners pick it up. But uh, thank you for your time today, Laura, and for telling us about uh, a world that's as strange as any distant planet, but much closer to home. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanbernard.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. 
All donations are greatly appreciated.